these are some of the key points that, that I identified from their about section. So much of the art world is stuffed full of performative liberal potlicking, politicking, sorry, potlicking. What is wrong with me? I thought it was, I, thought, I honestly thought it was British slang. My, my mouse cursor was, was over the word, but, um, Best error ever. So much of the art world is stuffed full of performative liberal pot, pot licking. I honestly thought it was some British slang, but let me rephrase the that. The licking of pots. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Should we get one? Let's do it. I am first this week. Okay. My subject is Disney and Apple are pushing us into the era of the $25 million TV episode. So this is relevant, very relevant because Disney plus is launching on Friday. So in two days from the time of this recording, which means it'll be out by the time you, the listener are listening to it. And Apple TV Plus is coming out in two weeks. And these are new streaming services that they're offering. Disney's is going to be $6.99. Apple TV Plus is $4.99 per month. Just some background. And because they are launching, they both have been putting a lot of effort into making these like brand new proprietary shows. It's through the roof. So previously... The most expensive TV series to air was Game of Thrones, averaging around $15 million an episode. And if you've seen Game of Thrones, then you can understand why, like based off of the production quality and also related to the talent they hired. Apple TV Plus is producing this show called C and another one called The Morning Show. And both of those are averaging $15 million per episode. Okay, so already at that um, GOT standard that GOT previously set. And then Disney Plus, knocking it like even further out of the park, their Marvel shows are going to be $25 million an episode, which is more money an episode than I can like properly wrap my head around. But it does make sense. Yeah, that's crazy. No, right? it, I think it's crazy. Though we also don't know how many episodes. Maybe that makes a difference. Does it matter though? I think that it matters less. The reason why I think it matters less is because I think you're still looking at it from an overall episodic perspective, right? Yeah. But I think that the series element of it is what draws people in. And that is the difference in business models. Like what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to your HBO subscription, your Netflix subscription, if that episode is $25 million and it's, it's you know, only five episodes long in a season, but it still keeps you entrenched as a subscriber, then it's done its job. Yeah. So it kind of just needs to be as long as it needs to be. But the flip side would be like, if it was traditional, like cable television. Right. Then it would have to run forever. 
and you have to run ads and whatnot. So that's sort of a bit of a different approach. There is actually a whole lot of practical reasons why the inflation of the cost of an episode is happening, which is the cost of talent has risen, the desire to make shows with production values that match like movies, which in Disney's case is really relevant because it's Marvel. So it kind of has to match this like aesthetic. And also, like you said, they have the comfort of a longer shelf life because the five episodes that they might make for a series lives on their streaming service, which exists forever in perpetuity. So people might watch it 10 years from now, et cetera. So eventually like the cost kind of pans out. What is kind of artificial though, is because Apple TV and Disney are like entering the competition, so to speak, the streaming service competition, that they're like bringing out the big guns. So even though the cost of TV episodes might have like steadily risen, Disney and Apple are kind of going like, boom, we're going to push it immediately to this point. One of the reasons I picked this subject is because I like talking about Disney as a company because it just blows my mind that we allowed this to happen. Well, I don't mean like we as in Wait, me, you and yeah. Please, and please elaborate on what you're saying. I mean, remember when we talked about Disney acquiring Fox? Yes. Which was, I actually don't have the date in front of me, but at least a year ago, we talked about Disney acquiring Fox. And at that time, it just seemed like unimaginable because Disney already was like a company difficult to compete with. The acquisition of Fox like just pushed that further as like a company just so much further ahead in its industry than everyone else that it was like, shouldn't this not be allowed? And Mm -hmm. that's how I feel when I talk about Disney. Of course it can do a $25 million episode because it's like just difficult to compete with slash impossible. What I find interesting about this topic is what does this mean for all the people that are out there to create work. Like, does this effectively make it more difficult to get into this whole sort of TV streaming business as a, as a creator, not as like a, a company? Or does it actually strengthen it? It strengthens it. So I should mention that the main article this comes from is in courts. And there's another courts article that talks in more detail about how this affects creators and essentially it comes up with the fact that it benefits them because it means that like loads of money is going into this area and large producers are acquiring the smaller companies or hiring the smaller companies to help them so it is a case where there is an increasing amount of work that is going to everyone big and small so on that front Yes, I kind of anticipated you asking this question. Oh. It is helping the creator, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, but I also had a question. Well, first of all, do you even like TV, Eugene? I mean, it's all right. I just never had a feeling that you were really into television. I think that it's more subject matter that drives my interest, but then TV itself is a very difficult thing to categorize and to define now isn't it like is netflix tv that's a good question i go yes still i think the episodic nature is it still is that format that is the distinguishing factor 
And so my follow-up question is whether you think TV is better by being more expensive. I think that in general, based on my experience, that yes, because more expensive buys the best talent, but also focus. So what that means is that when you have X number of dollars and you're guaranteed X number of dollars, like it's very hard for someone else to pull your attention away. Like you're fully dedicated to this one thing versus think about it yourself from a freelancer perspective. Like imagine if someone is only willing to pay you, you know, 75% of your usual rate and you have to stack those to make ends meet. Yeah. Versus if someone comes in, like a whale client comes in and pays you, you know, three times your day rate because they need something done and they and they recognize your value. I just think that the very way that the deals are set up or the, the investment put forth, because if you're going to drop $25 million on a TV episode, which is 60 minutes, which is traditionally what I think, you know, a TV episode, well, like what I think uh, something of that would command like or duration wise because game of thrones is about an hour yeah. right so i mean i could imagine there's a lot of special effects maybe that's where a lot of the cost is a lot go. of it goes to talent too yeah so yeah but no i i used to think that great things don't need budgets but i think there's you're basically working in different buckets right you can do good things without a lot of money but then you have a ceiling on it and if you move up to the next budget category mm-hmm. same thing and then if you really want the best of the best where money is no object, it's something to consider. But you know what's also interesting is that TV as a type of good that it is, is that most of the times when we think of a lot of money, we think of luxury, right? Yeah. But in the case of this is that, I mean, assuming a decent amount of people, Netflix is accessible, like yeah. they actually can reap the benefits of it in a different type of way. That's an interesting dynamic as well, because- Apple TV and Disney Plus are both not particularly expensive streaming services. So one's five a month and one's seven a month, which is really interesting to think about compared to how much money they are putting into their episodes, which suggests to me either they understand that they're not going to make up the money they put in episodes from subscriptions or my math is really bad and they do expect that much in subscriptions. I think at some point it they know what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, they must. They would definitely have more numbers on this than me. I think their unit economics is super on point. Okay, so I have another question. Do you think that the amount of money we as regular consumers spend on TV eventually taps out? Yeah. Like, there's all these streaming services, but... Even though I might be interested in all of them, I'm probably not going to spend more than 20 total per month yep. on streaming services. I mean, we've talked and about this before. And if that's the case, if that's the case across the board, okay, with like everyone who watches streaming services, then isn't there like a finite pool of money? There is a finite pool of money, but not for speculators, I think. Well, there's always going to be a finite pull, but I think about what I'm trying to say is that no one knows when you've reached the max. Even though they know that there's a finite pool, they are calculating that they can grab as much of that from their competitors. Yeah. 
I mean, the thing that makes it a little bit difficult around streaming is that it's not necessarily a zero-sum game because Netflix will have something that Disney won't have, right? Yeah. And depending yeah. on the allure, they might be able to get the overlap where someone's willing to pay for both. Or they'll just like swap, right? Like, I'm going to spend one month yeah. on Netflix yeah. and then next month I'll go to Disney, binge it, and then I'll go back. So that's really interesting as well because, you know, some people laugh and say like, oh, we've just recreated cable. But... I think one of the differences is that streaming services, at least for now, are mostly very easy to unsubscribe and then subscribe to. Mm -hmm. Whereas like in the old days, your cable package was not that easy Mm -hmm. to cancel and change, which is a good thing, I would argue. It means that there is control in the hands of the consumers where your viewing preferences really do directly affect what they're producing. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that like a good yeah. speculation about this? I think so. I mean, we've talked somewhat at length about all the different pieces that make up the whole Netflix ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, there's one more one thing that you said that I didn't respond to, which is that I actually do think that a TV doesn't have to get more expensive. Like, I, I do think that $25 million an episode is very exorbitant. And I can only imagine that that is, I like, I actually do hope that that is going to the writers and the actors and, you know, the the crew instead of big sets and sound effects and graphics and things like that. Because I just don't think it's necessary. Well, uh, you know what? It, it's hard to say. This is my reason why it's not necessary. Because I, I just feel like, sure, maybe they want to be like the movies to a degree. But think about the way we watch TV, which is on our laptops and even on our smartphones. At a certain point, I just would argue that people watch TV shows for the story and to follow that story than to get really great production. Yeah, yeah, I know what so, you mean. I, I think that you're, what you're saying is the story is more important than the overall rapper and the aesthetics. Yeah, and I don't know what they're spending their money on in that $25 million, so I guess I can't really detract from it because maybe that is really how much it costs to hire those writers and actors, in which case, good for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it for me yeah. on this subject. Oh, but one more interesting fact. The Sopranos cost $2 million an episode. Is that supposed to be surprising because of at the time it's supposed to be a comparison of quality which is that like you can be a very good tv show and cost two million dollars an episode yeah. but i mean the nature of the story in the set is to- so totally different and also the timing so i don't know if that's helpful but i thought it was interesting actually maybe that's this it. is a- another point too is that the other option is that maybe this be- creates some sort of inflationary approach where Everyone just gets paid more because the expectation now becomes... And also unions. That's one thing, too, in the the entertainment world. There's a lot of unions. Yeah. I mean, if if this is helpful to you, these are all shows that cost around 2 to $3 million an episode. Breaking Bad, The West Wing, Mad Men, Friday Night Lights, The Sopranos, and Seinfeld. And on one hand, you could argue that, like, sets-wise, like, you can see how those are a lot easier. But... I mean, I guess we don't know. This article doesn't give the breakdown for like how much actors are paid. So yeah, if if that's the main thing, if that if that's the cause of unions, then I am happy for it. 
All right, so we move on to the next one? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. topic this week is how to deal with your art being a token choice according to the white pube uh this is a bit of a different take i guess a, even just a different choice like i came across this as part of a help column uh that the white pube runs and if you're not familiar with the white pube which i wasn't uh they are a i guess a collaborative identity as they put it themselves, by Gabrielle de la Puenta and Zarina Mohammed, and they're based in the UK. And they write about art from a very visceral point of view. These are some of the key points that, that I identified from their about section. So much of the art world is stuff full of performative, liberal, politicking, politicking. I've always said this word as politicking. Politicking. Actually, politicking. It's politicking. Okay. It is politicking. I'm trying to think how I see it. I'm trying to think of how it's I see politicking. it. What else would it be? Politicking? Politicking? You know what? Politicking? I think, it's, it's politicking. I think I usually see this word without the G. That's why it's throwing me off. I usually see it with apostrophe. Man, this is... It's definitely... Okay. It's definitely politicking. I'm oh cutting all of God. this out. Oh, my God. This is what we this is what we get for recording at whatever it is, 220 a.m. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So back to the root of this piece, which is an, an anonymous question that was asked to the white pube. And the person that wrote in said, As I'm getting more recognition for my work, I am also heavily aware that I'm being welcomed into spaces and given opportunities due to tokenism. How do I navigate the world of art and taking up opportunities with the knowledge of the moral dilemma I face that I am the equality quota for being a black woman who is a refugee and they may have influenced their opinion on taking me on? Should I take these opportunities? How do I address tokenism when I'm made aware that this was how I got my opportunity? First off, how do you describe tokenism? Or should I just defer straight to Wikipedia? Tokenism, according to Sharice. <laughs> is when an institution, a large body of authority, cherry picks a person based off of a perception of their identity as being beneficial to their image. And usually that perception of the identity is somewhat diverse or POC or otherwise perceived as lacking in their existing institution. Yeah. So for example, a museum run by all white male curators might intentionally find the most visible black female artist to do a solo exhibition with because they realize that it looks really bad for their museum in this climate. 
to be made up of the kind of curators that they are and putting on the work that they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty much it. Do you want to? I think Wikipedia. Add anything from Wikipedia? Well, it's. I mean, the outcome of tokenism for the people that engage in it is just social capital, right? Like they kind of get that, hey, we're woke or we're like giving people chances, etc. That's probably. I mean, I think the second line of wiki, the Wikipedia is pretty good. The effort of including a token employee to a workforce is usually intended to create the impression of social inclusiveness and diversity, i.e. racial, religious, sexual, etc., in order to deflect accusations of discrimination. Yeah. So it's a tactic, basically. Exactly. All right. Yeah, it's a it's a strategic move. Yeah. Do you think it's cheating when I copy and paste large passages? Yes and no. On one hand, with an article like this, I think it's important that we read from what Gabrielle de la Puente and Serena Muhammad wrote themselves. Yeah. On the other hand, you you as this podcast host should probably do a summary or some kind of like explanation because we can't read the whole thing. Read between the lines. You're lazy, Eugene. Okay. Noted. Noted. Both. What I'm saying is you got to do a mix of both. All right. So anyways, I, I want to identify a few key points and the white pube writes in a very distinct style, like super off the cuff. Like, I don't even know if they reread their stuff. They just, you know, they just have at it. But one of the points they made was so much of the art world is stuff full of performative liberal politicking in gestural or visible diversity. And they use squiggly quotes, squiggly lines as a buzzword. I know a lot. They're of- called tildes. Oh, okay. Thanks, Reese. Rolling my eyes because you know what that is. I know a lot of places I could do with a hard, immutable quota. So if you're worried that you're only getting your foot in the door because of a quota, please don't. Of course, you should take these opportunities, of course. You deserve them, and of course, you shouldn't feel bad for taking up space at the table. We belong here, too. In the words of Christopher Karubi, someone much wiser and more elegant than me, and eloquent than me, these institutions should belong to us. And then they also go on to talk about the boring nature of many art exhibitions that are filled with sort of rich and clicky people. And... Mm -hmm. There's also a Well, I think they talk about that not to just say it's boring, but they talk about the fact that the art world as it is is already cliquey. Like as in it's not like this fair fair playing field anyway, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then they also go on to talk about how tokenism is in part a tool by certain groups too. And this is where they reference artist Chirag Bakta from the 2013 essay from Mother Jones. My experience with the Asian Art Museum was an exercise in watching white people work out their identity on the back of mine. The platform they seemed to give me, it turned out, wasn't actually for me. It was for them. A way to fashion my brownness into something they could wear. So that's kind of the point, like the social capital I was was alluding to. I think there is something else at play here that is not just social capital, which is something that we can possibly observe in our personal lives as well which is where a white person or a very well-represented person, let's say, makes a relationship with a underrepresented person, whether that's religious, sexual, racial, et cetera, in order to figure something out about themselves. 
Yeah. It's like when you make a friend intentionally with that kind of motive. Like, and it doesn't have to be race. Like in this case from the artist Bakta is about race, but it could be like, oh, I need to work out how I feel about homosexuality. So I'm going to go find a gay friend. That's a really interesting insight. I, I've never really thought of it that way. But I maybe it's just like optics because I look at it as wanting to maybe meet someone that's different. And maybe difference itself is tokenism. It's it's a very fine line, which is what I think the white pube says as well. Because I'm not saying like, oh, that definitely doesn't mean that then you only be friends with people who look like you. But it's about this intention and how you maybe use a relationship. If you develop a friendship with this kind of specific intention of trying to work out your own feelings towards homosexuality, that's not fair to this person. That you are using their experience and your relationship with them to work out something in yourself. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Because I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is when does tokenism become what we feel is incorrect? Like, like for example, if I interact with someone for that exact thing where I want to learn more about your culture, I want to learn about uh, your insights and, your, and how you look at the world and I want to empathize with you, but I never talk to anyone about it. I don't utilize it for anything but for my own growth and in hopes that I can take that growth and apply it into another context. I mean, there's that, but even with the fact where you don't tell other people about it, there could be still something in your relationship that's not great, mm. which I think is when you just see that person as being that identity. Okay. I think that's where you're helping me clarify this. If your gay friend to you is just this symbol of what homosexuality is, and you you use that relationship as like a textbook on homosexuality, that's not fair to them as a person because they're not just this icon of what being gay means. And there's so much more about a person. I know it sounds obvious to say that, but yeah. like there's a lot more about that person than their sexual identity. Yeah. So it's it's when you use that relationship for a very flat purpose. So to use that I think is the wrong. anonymous person who asked the question would it be like hey when we're talking to this person in the media it's only drilling them down on like how did you get into art because you were a refugee yeah okay yeah so, exactly that's a good example too yeah. or like the only questions she ever gets asked is what does it mean to you to be black in x circumstance yeah or like oh the art world is so white so being black must mean that you xyz like that, to only paint her story based off of these two angles. Got it. Now that's helpful. That's a good way to break it down. Because I guess tokenism itself has to essentially anchor itself to a key trait. I do think that there's like a really, I think you're right though, to talk about like, well, what if I genuinely do want to learn more about experiences that are not my own? Like that's something that people should do and we should encourage that. So it is this like really tricky balancing act where it's like, yes, you should go find people who are different from yourself and you should give them attention, but also they are more than that thing. 
Mm-hmm. They are more than the aspect that you find different from yourself. Yeah. There's just two more points here that were also mentioned by the white pube. They said that if you feel like you are in a position where you're subjected to tokenism, you just need to be really cutthroat. Like you should be willing to walk away from the deal. Because in some ways that's your leverage, right? Because they're trying to utilize you for several different reasons and you're trying to get them to pay for all those reasons versus if the work was just genuinely good. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one way that's, I mean, I, I, I think regardless of the situation, it's worth asking. Otherwise, you'll never know. Yeah, I think it's like asking for a raise as well, you know? Like, you sh- if you see something, you should say something, to quote the um, MTA. And finally, the, the white pube ends it on a note where they talk about themselves a bit more. Where they're like, hey, one way to prevent tokenism from happening is just like owning the playground. So they themselves as a media platform have full control. No one can dictate what they say, how they say it, when they say it, etc. So that to them has been a really great asset. So I don't think everyone has that ability. Maybe more so now because of social media, you own your platform. Well, you don't own your platform. You have the ability to publish on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they say, I think they're right. Like that is a great solution to put forward. And they say this too, like it's a super not easy solution because no one is going to get paid when you start doing that. Like when you begin your own platform, if you're lucky, maybe you find a funder or maybe you have your, you can self-fund yourself. But the reality is that probably you're doing other work and then also trying to get this off the ground to a place where it can pay for itself. Mm-hmm. And then the question I want to ask is, what is it about tokenism that bothers us? And is there actually a silver That's lining? A good question. Like for me, I was thinking about it. And I think that maybe fundamentally tokenism devalues your work because you yourself, the things you care about, which is not your background necessarily, right? Like if you're an artist, like I don't really think that my background and everything else comes first, but someone has taken that and changed the hierarchy. Speaking as someone who, like I told you earlier, has a lot of anxieties. In the case of tokenism, the anxiety, I think, is, is my work good enough as it is? Mm-hmm. If my work was attached to a white-sounding name, would they still see it as valuable? Mm-hmm. Or, is, or did they give it extra credit because of something about my background? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's kind of haunting, unfortunately. Like, it's just kind of like an intangible effect where you're not sure what is motivating the success that you're getting. It's mostly internal, though, what I'm saying. Because on one hand, if the external effect of tokenism is that you get invited to shows and you get paid and you get media, then The con is this internal feeling that your work is not good enough and that you're getting credit that is undeserved. Yeah. My silver lining, and everyone's mileage may vary, is that tokenism in some ways aligns with the zeitgeist, right? It's like what's hot, what's like relevant of right now. So in some ways, you are provided a bit of an accelerant towards the front of the line through tokenism 
So do you leverage that? Do you understand it? Do you play its game knowing full well, like at its core, like I'm not going to let this get in the way of the fact that I really believe in my work, but I'm going to actually utilize this to tell my message to more people versus waiting, waiting and growing slowly or more slowly, right? I see what you mean. And I do think that that is a clever play. And I think the white pube says that too. Like if they hire you, like get them to pay you as much as you can, you know, the, the, the con of what you're saying is that trends come and go. So if the trend moves past what your identity is and you didn't establish yourself as a creative person beyond that identity, then what happens? Suddenly your identity isn't trendy with the institutions. Mm -hmm. So even though the work is good, they only see you as a blank artist, you know, as a black artist, as a gay artist, as a female, et cetera. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I, I maybe see it a little bit differently because the reason being, the reason I see it differently is that your background, your, your racial background, whatever it may be, and your art are not as closely tied together versus yeah no i agree but what about like the perception people have of you yeah i don't know in some capacities i think it's a little bit more protected because like i'm trying to i was actually looking at one hit wonders right and i'm wondering if one hit wonders because the very thing that they're known for is so closely tied to their output versus if Mm. you're like a black female refugee but your artwork is that there's actually like a disconnection Mm -hmm. there i guess in the example you in the scenario you played out where someone takes advantage of tokenism as an accelerant the ideal case is they do that get the exposure and money that they can from having been this token choice And they also make it clear that whenever they're communicating their message, they're communicating more than just the identity. Mm -hmm. So like use it for what it's worth, like don't turn it down. But then whenever media talks to you, you make sure that you're telling your story the way you want to tell it Mm -hmm. and not because you're a token XYZ. Yeah. I guess that's the best case scenario. Have you ever felt like you were on the receiving end of tokenism? I think it's a little bit harder for me to comment on that because I don't fall within a place that I think warrants tokenism. Like, I think if I was an artist, a photographer, then and I had like a very clear definitive output, maybe. But also maybe I just never really felt like well, this is this is kind of the weird thing is like I've always had this personal push pull between the element of imposter syndrome but also being very confident. So, like mm-hmm. maybe maybe when things are are convenient, you kind of defer to the stronger side. But mm-hmm. I think now like I don't know. I don't I don't know if I feel like I'm undeserving of something. I don't I didn't I don't have any personal stories about tokenism that come to mind. I don't I, I don't really either. I mean, but I I just think that there's a silver lining there 
to like leverage the shit out of it if it falls into your lap. You could be seen yeah. as selling out by your peers, but then at the same time, you're potentially bringing in a new audience. Well, I think also one silver lining, which I think is the responsible thing to do, is if you were in a position of being treated as a token XYZ, is to bring other people in the door. And like someone's given you this opportunity whatever it is can you use that as a lever to make sure that it doesn't just happen to you like you are this solo case but that you know it it can be widespread to other underrepresented people mm-hmm. it's all for me that was a good one yeah considering it's two forty six a.m feel like I still have a lot of stuff to tackle on my to-do list. Well, luckily for you, you're pulling an all-nighter. I don't know how many people do this, but generally speaking, if I'm going to do a flight into a pretty drastic time zone, I try my best to sleep on the plane, which I'm very fortunate in that not everyone can sleep on the plane, but then also to match time zones. Yeah, but most people don't do all-nighters in order to convince themselves to sleep on the plane. Really? I thought that just made total sense. I don't know. I mean, I just try to conk out on the plane at the right time. I Well, how though? With natural means? Or do you actually use some sort no, of... No, natural means. But I'm also really no. fortunate. I just sleep really well. Yeah. Oh, hey. This leads into the revelation of the week for me. So... Contrary to the statement I just made, I actually have not been sleeping so well this past week. I've been sleeping enough hours, okay? You know, eight, nine hours, which is loads, but the sleep itself, the quality is not great. And I'm finally willing to admit that it might be related to coffee. Oh, because you drink coffee like at 7 p.m.? Well, not all the way at 7, but pretty close to 7, like... Five, six. So. Dude, for sure you can't sleep. No, but the thing is, I do sleep. That's the thing, though, is that I, I fall asleep, but I'm discovering that this, the quality of sleep I'm getting is not as good as it used to be. So I'm finally ready to blame it on coffee. I'm finally ready. I'm going to say it on air. I'm going to start cutting back. Uh, you, are the, you are a coffee fiend, though. Yeah, I am. Yo, just to give you guys a bit of context around Sharice's coffee habits like I don't think she's ever turned on a cup of coffee like, no ever. I really haven't you're like addicted I, I really am addicted in fact I have a friend who has described me as permanently holding a cup of coffee like that is their picture of me in their head with like like an accessory you should just try to cut coffee for a week and then see what happens afterwards yeah so because i think there's you're definitely desensitized to caffeine yeah so yes yes totally agree with you this is a good question for you because you're into you know whatever substances and things what 
nothing nothing illegal nothing illegal but you know you 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 experiment more with like what you eat and drink so the question is if i drink tea instead is that okay or should i go cold turkey i think you should just try to go off it well the thing is like i don't i don't believe people that say that coffee is like bad for you that's far from the case but i can see why people use it as a crutch or see it as a crutch but i think ultimately and someone obviously with a with a scientific background or a, or a biology background can probably fact check this much better but when you become desensitized to coffee or caffeine i should say caffeine i think it's something to do with like your adrenal response mm. how you react to it but i mean there are some times when i won't go i won't drink coffee regularly or just have really weak coffee and then that one bit of coffee gives you that sort of first cup of coffee ever jitters mm-hmm. it doesn't happen that often okay then i'll get back to you in a week <laughs> to find out yeah. how this all went what about you uh my revelation is probably along the lines of just what it means to transition from i think an artist towards a commercial artist um and obviously i I use this in a very sort of loose context because i would say that editorial and i think you would agree too editorial is relatively close to being an artist in a way like yeah you're trying to address what the what the people want to see or read or whatnot but you also are the one dictating and setting the tone like let's let's use that right do you agree or not agree? I don't agree, but I feel really? like this is going somewhere else, maybe. I want to know why you don't don't agree, though. Because I think art, my definition of art, which I've said on this podcast before, is something that you make for yourself. An editorial you make for a reader. Mm, well, no, but I think that editorials are generally speaking based out of your own interest, right? I'm not reporting on the news where the news itself is dictating what I write about. But anyways, you're right. You you definitely opened up a can of worms that did not need to be opened. I think if we had to go into working with words, then a poet is probably closer to an artist than an editor. Like a poet or a writer. Okay, gradients. Let's use like along the spectrum then. Sure. Where is this going? Are you trying to say that you feel like you are an artist who is transitioning from something that is less commercial to something that is more commercial? No, I just think that it's the type of work you do and how you interact with it. And I think that if you have this foundation of creating work for yourself, you have a very high standard that you generally set for yourself, right? Yeah. Sure. Assuming most artists have like their own standard that they set. I mean, you don't have to be an artist to have a high standard you set for yourself, but go on. No, you're right. But I guess for me, it's thinking along the lines of that the standard you you set for yourself, generally speaking, in most circumstances is probably sufficient across the board. So like if you brought it down, then I think the general sentiment is that people will rarely care as much as you do. Oh, definitely. Like, I find that very hard. Like, I mean, this is not revelational, but I think the part that is revelational is just that, like, what does it mean when you come from 
I guess, the top and work your way downwards? Uh, this is like a second revelation that I had this week, but I did have conversations this week about whether sometimes you need to lower the bar you set for yourself. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because it is unsustainable and unnecessary in certain situations. Yep, I definitely agree with that. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.